You're listening to Run Chat Live podcast, putting the evidence back into running injury and performance. Hey, people, how you doing? Um, we're starting tonight, nearly at the mics, and I was going to say, we're starting tonight a bit like Joe Rogan style, just straight in with a guest here in the studio, none of this me talking beforehand. How are you, Dr. Izzymore? I'm good, thanks, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm not prepared just to have my guest right next to me now, it feels like I need to sort of put you back down to the lobby for a while, but we will do this because, you know what, I've been I've been practising with TikTok, Dr. Izzymore. Oh, wow, okay, you're, you're ahead of me then. <laughs> And one of the things, but it's been quite interesting because one of the things is if you want to get someone's attention, just go straight in with it. None of this yeah. preambling and, hi, I'm Matt Phillips. How would you like to know? It's just, bam, why do yeah. female runners get injured more than male runners? Bam. And it's like, and there's kind of a bit of a message in there. So I thought tonight we'd just start with a bam and we're both here. So. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully if the numbers shoot up, you know why. <laughs> well, if you listen to podcasts and thank you for listening to us, we are recording these live. Okay, we are doing it live because we like that bam, 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 putting our speak on the spot. So if you do want to join us live um, in future, then all you have to do is look out for the adverts um, and it goes out on YouTube. And at the moment, it's a Monday night at eight o'clock and Dr. Izzy Moore is with us. It's part three of our four part gate analysis special. Um, in episode 61, we had the pleasure, or I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Max Paquette, Associate Professor of the University of Memphis Human Performance Centre. Episode 62, last couple of weeks ago, we talked to um, our mutual colleague, Dr. Jean-Francois Scoulier, um, Vice President and Director of Research and Development at the Running Clinic. Um, did you like that French accent? Yeah, yeah, yeah very there, good. Was it? I'm practicing that. <laughs> and, uh, and then a couple of weeks' time on Thursday, March the 2nd at 8 o'clock, this is GMT we're from the UK, um, what's uh, it's produced from the UK. My guest will be Dr. Alison Gruber, Assistant Professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Indiana University, Bloomington. But in this episode, um, I've got the pleasure of spending some more time with Dr. Izzy Moore, Associate Professor in Human Movement and Sports Medicine at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Izzy for a while now, firstly because of a huge history of research papers which got my attention from the moment the word controversial came up I think that was in one of the earliest papers I saw probably a decade ago and and have ever since admired um, Izzy's work and obviously all the people that Izzy has worked with um, so yeah about was it is it 10 years ago or more your first depth uh, into running just, related just research just over 10 yeah just over 10 and does it feel like that? I don't want to make it sound <laughs> yeah, old, but it does. It's certainly, when I have PhD students, I'm like, oh, and I did my PhD, and I'm like, oh well, okay, now that was over ten years ago when I started, so I need to stop making it sound like it was yesterday. Let's bring up actually. I have got some images here. If you listen to the podcast, you can't see what's coming up on the screen. But if you are interested in seeing it, then all you've got to do is go along to the YouTube Bunch Up Live YouTube channel, and then you can see what I'm bringing up. I have got a still here, which I'll put, even though it's on full screen, as you um, people can still hear us. But um, yeah, this is um, just uh, if you're interested in any of our speakers in, in this gate analysis series, and just go to ResearchGate, probably the easiest place, and you can find a lovely assorted. Um, list of all the uh, papers that have been published there and Dr Izzy Isabel S Moore here showing 76 at the moment and counting um, and this was the one let me get rid of the tab at the bottom there because it's hiding a little bit da, 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 let's get rid of that so this was 
June 2016, running economy, oh, is there an economical running technique, a review of modifiable biomechanical factors affecting running economy? Um, running economy has been your, is it fair to say that's been your main passion and interest? Well, yeah, it was certainly where I started. So that was my PhD on economical running, uh, really at a time, when did I start? 2010 I started. So, uh, so it was, it was really at a time when not a lot of people were looking at running economy and running biomechanics, uh, apart from some early work in the 80s. And then along came my PhD and actually a similar sort of time barefoot running started get that got published in 2010 by Dr. Daniel Lieberman. And suddenly, actually, a whole wave of biomechanics and running economy started happening. And I just happened to be right place, right time, I think. Do you feel, do you actually, it's interesting you should say that. Do you feel you were in the right place in the right time? Did you, did it give you something to jump on and, and feel passionate about and sort of sort out the misconceptions and things? Yeah, definitely. For me, I've, I've always liked blending different elements of sports science and sport medicine rather than sticking to one silo, like pure biomechanics or pure physiology, for example. Uh, I sat in the middle during my PhD and had a biomechanist and physiologist as supervisors and I had to do that kind of blending together and yeah the barefoot running era if, if shall we call it that happened and coincided with us trying to think of where should we take my PhD after I'd done a couple of studies and we ended up going a little bit down that route as well which I quite enjoyed uh, it was probably a lot more controversial than just e economical running and being able to apply my understanding of economical running and biomechanics to, to barefoot running and some footwear uh, was pretty novel uh, it's since become very not novel it's uh, been done far more I think it's very common now I've definitely seen the shift where actually measuring things like running economy or some performance measures alongside running gait is I mean there's there's loads of papers coming out with that and, and that wasn't really the, as much the case when I first started. And I'm interested um, you say the barefoot kind of craze that did stimulate a lot of people to Oh, maybe that's when it became a little bit polarised. But what are some of the names or research that you kind of, I don't know whether you would regard them as kind of giants whose shoulders you stood on, but what were some of the papers that were already out there which you were looking at and maybe questioning? I guess the Lieberman paper in, that got published in Nature. Uh, and I don't think we can over, overstate how important getting published in Nature and doing biomechanics of running, that's incredible. Mm. And that really did, whether you agree with, the barefoot running form and and that side of it it really did catapult running gait and biomechanics to, to a place I don't think it had ever been before mm -hmm. uh, so you, you have to look at some of the Lieberman papers which came from a different you know they came from evolutionary perspectives and again biomechanistic well typically in kind of the sports running biomechanics we don't we don't have that knowledge that background so it was a different way of understanding human movement which i i liked the fact that they were thinking differently and they're, they're challenging the sports biomechanics community and then actually um 
uh, your your final guest, Alison Gruber. We actually did PhDs at very similar times, and uh, she, her and her supervisor, um, I think it was Joe Hamill, they started doing also some really good, great barefoot running type studies. So there's this here over in America, uh, less actually in the UK, tending to focus on it. There's some great stuff coming out from from the Americans, but yeah, that Lieberman paper really. It was actually that paper that my supervisor handed to me and went, this barefoot running looks quite interesting. Why don't we think about that? That's amazing. How about Dr. Um, Irene Davis? That was a name which I always kind of figured. I mean, to tell you the truth, I don't think I've ever said this before. I don't know how this is going to come out now, but I see you as kind of a modern Irene Davis. Oh, wow. Okay. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, wow. I've never met her in person, <laughs> but that was a name which I always associated. And, and I apologize to Dr. Davis if, if you listen to this now. I've no idea how old you are, but I kind of, and, and it's still very relevant, obviously, but I kind of associated pre-2000 with that name, which was kind of nice because I think it was a woman amongst a sea of male mm. research. And, and she, I think you'll admit she did a, a fantastic load of research. But that she was, it seems that that era was also caught up in the barefoot thing and showing the kind of caught over the foot and even like later down. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, because she, she was on that Liebman paper. So she was the mm-hmm. main, main biomechanist. And she, I think, has definitely been pushing, pushing us to think a bit differently. She, along with barefoot running started really gave me training mm-hmm. there are some early early examples of changing running gait but really her paper um i think it was in the journal of um sports physical therapy or uh, and it had just small number of runners handful going oh look we give them some biofeedback when they run we can alter what they do and i think this is useful for uh, running injury rehabilitation and again, it, that that paper really kick-started so many papers on, on gait retraining, which I've kind of been on that quest a bit as well. So, yeah, she's she's again. I think uh, I think she divides opinions because she's very opinionated in her views with barefoot running and gait retraining. But uh, she has done some really good science, and I think has really pushed forward the research and our understanding and you can't can't take that away from her and I think she does have a great amount of respect and like you say admiration she's been a woman in a very male-dominated world biomechanics uh, for a long time now definitely definitely yep a uh, big shout out there to Dr Irene Davis a name which if you listen to this podcast and you're not familiar with then I, I would say you need to look at the research a little bit deeper then maybe go a little bit further back um, and see uh, uh, yeah a real legend um, but now we're talking to modern legend Dr Izzy Moore so you can't be a legend getting old enough there you go um give give it give listeners an idea of the sort of kit you've got I've seen photos of you at work but at Cardiff what sort of instruments software and hardware have you got to do your research everything everything and anything we've got I guess you could say the the traditional biomechanics of our infrared motion caption cameras and systems so we've we've got loads uh, we've got enough to almost have two or three operating labs at the same time uh, we've got over six or seven force plates and a big trench in our indoor running track where we can line them up and get multiple consecutive foot strikes because one of my colleagues has a lot of sprint biomechanics and sprint starts biomechanics so we've 
I also had some instrumented uh, starting blocks as well. Uh, we've custom made a treadmill that can measure force at the same time. We have very clever uh, technicians that I'm very thankful to work with. And then we also have a lot of the new wearable technologies as well. So we've got some insoles in the shoes that can measure vertical force. We have IMUs, so inertia sensors that measure the acceleration uh, that you'll see a lot in papers. So we kind of have the traditional as well as some of the modern equipment and it allows us to therefore be able to think about what are the best equipment to want for our question but also particularly when you're working with applied sports or clinicians that's when actually some of the wearable technologies become a little bit handier uh, and maybe they're the best ones to use. Fantastic. Anyone interested in gate analysis at the moment is drooling away, I think, and cleaning their keyboard to, to imagine all of the gear you've got, which you can literally play around with to your heart's content. Is it just another job I'm interested in, or do you wake up thinking, right, what are we going to do today? <laughs> uh, you know, I love research and I love uh, I will talk to some of the, the recent collaborations I've developed. And, you know, I've gone for a phase where I haven't loved my research as much, and I'm definitely now back it back in the zone of of really enjoying it and just I think it's one of the best jobs in the world I, I kind of just get paid to be interested in things and to go and find answers and and do cool research with uh, collaborators and really great students so yeah I, I love it and I love just kind of going oh I don't know this so let's go and find it out amazing I'm glad you said that Glad you said you actually do enjoy it because it sounds, sounds absolutely amazing. Um, in talking of kind of the other thing I wanted to mention was the last two guests we've had, especially Max, Dr. Max Paquette, um, J.F. Escolier, maybe a little bit less, but they both acknowledged, as, as I'm sure you will, that the significance we've placed on biomechanics or that has been placed on biomechanics since, well, since Dr. Ben O'Neill, who was on the show years or well, not years ago yeah probably was years ago it's reduced since the 86 and 90s when he was kind of going oh hold on but everyone thinks everyone seems to have caught up now thinking we've been putting too much um assumptions on the biomechanics and especially linking with injury and that but i love how you especially in your recent studies have started looking um, at factors other than sex specific differences in biomechanics um and the work you've done I was particularly interested in the work you've done with Gwania donnelly and emma brockwell who have both been on the show um, in 21 and 22, I'm just going to bring up for people who um, are watching the YouTube video. I think I've got a screenshot or oh, a screenshot of those. Um, so we had, um, let's go to the next one there. Uh, we had running during pregnancy and postpartum part, my eyesight here, part B, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah how, B, part, yeah. how does running related advice and guidance received during pregnancy and postpartum affect women's running um, habits? And also running during pregnancy and postpartum part A, why do women stop running during pregnancy and not return to running in the postpartum period? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about why you got involved in those and what were some of the takeaways from those? Yes, they really came off the back of... Uh, kind of fortuitous email that I just sent. Uh, I can say that was at a time where I wasn't in love with all of my research. I think it was back in 2020 and reached out to Gwanya and Emma off the back of their return to running clinical guidelines and really wanted to do some more impactful research. 
they were really keen so we put a survey together it was classic lockdown research because it's a survey and we got a phenomenal response and that survey really uh, had multiple aims so those two papers were part of that survey and we wanted to understand what actually is getting in the way of women being able to, to keep running when pregnant and to return to running so if we're going to actually try and maybe do an intervention or look to support women but we're better informed in what we're doing so that made up uh part a principally where and we see a lot of essentially pelvic floor uh dysfunction of some of the common barriers but also to making women stop but also meaning they don't get back to running as well but there are also other things like fears of maybe harm to the baby and the actual kind of input we get from others so uh having having been someone who was pregnant and running you know i'm I, i know the looks that you kind of get and sometimes that oh should you be running type comment maybe it's done from a good place but isn't necessarily that great to be saying rather than going how can we best support you to remain as as active as possible during your pregnancy so we're able to identify some like i say so those barriers that got in the way of women when they were pregnant and then part of uh, the part b paper was actually looking at well do you actually get told about exercise guidance during pregnancy and return and and only about a third of women do from their healthcare providers and actually it's the fact that they're not getting this kind of guidance that is also significantly affecting whether they keep keep going and are able to return and we're also able to ask some really nice questions in there about the those the people that were aware of the clinical guidelines that Gonya and Emma put together and that seemed to actually help facilitate women get back to running we on their own or indeed reach out to a pelvic health physio which i don't actually think a lot of women are aware of or aware that's an option because again typically we might not get given that kind of guidance from our gp or midwives or whoever we're seeing may not point us in the direction of a pelvic health physio so they were really good papers to get just that I guess to some extent it probably just reinforced what Guanyu and Emma maybe knew from a, a clinical on the ground perspective and we just came in with putting a putting it out in a paper uh, but they they were really the I guess the more focused on, on that side of it but there's a paper in British Journal of Sport Medicine which was a little bit further down that list of papers there where that was i guess uh, our big hitter paper where we tried to identify factors that contribute to women return to running so the other papers were uh, a bit more qualitative as well as uh, so we're kind of digging a bit deeper into detail whereas our factors look that contributed to return to running was was very quantitative and we were able to see with statistics basically what contributed to women to return to running and we found that a lower fear of movement having a high running volume pre-pregnancy uh suffering from the sensation of vaginal heaviness uh, they inf- influence whether someone returned to running or not 
pregnancy. Uh, really nice, neat paper to be able to do with that clinical mind as well as that sport medicine side of things. So a real blend together. Amazing. And we'll make sure links to the, all these papers go into the show notes, which you can find on Podbean, or I also put them on YouTube about a week after we go out live. So I'll make sure links to all of that. Um, yeah, definitely an area with, like I say, we've talked to Gronia Donnelly and Emma, uh, Donnelly and Emma Brockwell on the show. And also even further back, we talked to Tina Maria about um, Athletic Maria. I think we talked to Sonia um, Fierro about her return um, to uh, training after the birth of her son. Um, and yeah, it was amazing. Even now in 2023, I think then, yeah, 2023. Um, yeah, just the poor information that's still out there uh, and being given, like, don't lift anything heavier than your handbag in the first, I think it was, I don't know, it's a horrific amount of time and only start weight bearing activity, something like 18 days in or something. It was pretty scary and it's such a shame. You know, because it's it's yeah harming people's lives post pregnancy, isn't it? And maybe not even returning to running or f- forever worrying about pushing themselves. And yes, great shame. Yeah, and I think I mean it's kind of a state of women's healthcare, particularly in the, in the UK in general. Um, we kind of just think women, you know, birth is quite natural, childbirth is quite natural, so you just naturally get back to. <laughs> whatever it is you wanted to do and having gone through the postnatal care that we receive I can say uh, you don't it's not really good it's not good enough to Mm. support women to be back exercising at all Uh, and but in in fairness there isn't the evidence there that because it's never really been researched that well so there's a gap in the the data and Mm. there's a gap in the the clinical uh, input that women are getting well, fortunately, we've got people like yourself and Gonya and Emma on it and plenty of others who hopefully are changed. We just need you guys to be in more national newspapers and things. Now and again, something gets printed, but then something else gets printed and you see it. And it's just like, oh, it's just forehead slaps thinking we're going back again. You know, we went forwards with something. Roger Kerry got something independent or Mary O'Keefe with back pain. Or I think even Derek Griffin got something in. And and I'm not sure whether Gonya, have you, I don't know if Gonya and, um, and Emma have managed to get something. I think there was something in a national newspaper but then it's 10 steps backwards, isn't it? Something else comes along. Anyway, let's not dwell. <laughs> Although we are still going to talk about misinformation, I imagine, because um, we're going to move on to what probably people are listen- wanting to listen to today with regards to gait analysis. And that typically is, for a lot of people, the kinematics, okay, the movement, because not many people have the joy of what you've got playing around with force plates and and obviously can't see kinetic changes. So a lot of people are fixated on the kinematic changes. And that's who I'm hoping the listeners to this, um, I hope that's what you have been fixating on because there might be some surprises now, there might be some confirmations, but let's talk about um, kinematic variables. Some of the sex specific differences we do see in kinematic variables for female runners um, and maybe link it with running economy, maybe first of all. Maybe give us a summary if you could. Okay, it's a big thing short because uh, <laughs> it's... Or what, what is out there and then yeah. maybe what hasn't got quite as much influence as we once thought. Well, you know, there's a lot of inconsistent data as there always is with running. One of the, really, one of the only consistencies is greater hip adduction in female runners than in male runners. And sometimes... Also, hip internal rotation. There, 
they're really the, the main consistent things that we're seeing when we're comparing males to females kinematically. Sometimes there, there is some data around the pelvis, but again, that actually that isn't consistently shown to be different. And so I guess if you don't have all the cameras, but you, you do have a, a visual assessment, it's the hip abduction. Um, in terms of the link then with economy, actually, we don't really know a lot between that frontal plane motion and economy. We know a lot more about sagittal plane motion and we see with the sagittal plane, the female runners actually tend to have less knee extension at toe off. So just as you're pushing off the ground, rather than trying to aim for, a, I guess you could say, a really straight leg. Uh, which actually kind of generates more upward propulsion. It's about having a bit more flexion in that leg, um, which I propose in some of our papers is about driving forwards. So we've shown it has been shown quite consistently in female runners that this is an economical strategy, that being driving forwards. And we actually see, I think there was a paper with male runners that actually found the opposite kind of correlation that they do have more knee extension then that's better for economy so what we do need is this kind of sex disaggregated data because typically uh there was there's been some good studies uh, in the last few years quite big ones but they've actually just pulled male and female data and that hampers what we're able to say from a sex difference and econ economic economical perspective so the hip abduction, there is a study which shows an actually greater range of motion in that hip abduction uh, has been linked with a higher running or a worse running economy, I should say, so higher metabolic cost. But that was in males. But I imagine it's probably something similar in females. But with every, I think every biomechanical variable, there's probably a sweet spot because mm -hmm. you can't just infinitely not have any hip abduction. <laughs> um, so it probably sits somewhere where you'd have a nice middle ground where you have some because we obviously you know running you need to remember is, is a bouncing gait you flex and you extend and you ab and adduct and i think we need to move away from thinking the ex basically stay away from the extreme sit on the fence in the, in the middle and that's what we do see with uh, some spatial temporal data is this kind of window in the middle of optimized gate so just to confirm because i'm not sure how clear it will come out on the podcast every time you said adduction there it was adduction wasn't it yeah AD yeah, yeah yeah just Sorry. making sure because i know no i know that sometimes it comes out and it's and it, and it might not be that clear i don't know who invented those words but we could have made them more similar if they wanted to some bloke obviously but yeah so more adduction um so because with this, the idea of this show is for people who are giving gait analysis. So traditionally, if a runner comes in, most of the runners we see are injured, and we'll talk about the links to injury in a second. But for runners who come in who just want to improve their performance, maybe they're not getting PBs and they like the sound of you and they come in. Is it part of the jigsaw we should play around with if we do see that they've got more adduction or internal rotation on one leg? Is it worth us going, oh, let's see if we can change that because that might improve your economy? Or are you, as I believe, maybe Dr. Max Paquette might be a little bit more, is like, no, if it's not broken, don't change it. You can't do it. It's not worth it. Yeah, I think 
from a performance perspective, it's very, I would say, very hard to justify playing around a bit unless you're really at the elite, trained, fine-tuned end of the spectrum, because the changes that we we have seen in literature that is it hasn't actually been hip a deduction, but the things like stride length, contact time. Even if you do make those changes, we're talking about you know, two, three percent changes to your economy, and you now you have to be very good at repeat performances for that to be noticeable because of biomechanical change. You know, you could just wake up in a bad mood, and uh, if particularly for less trained runners, that that may be the the biggest influence on what you're doing rather than than tweaking your your gait. So. When we change gate, there are small changes to economy. Now that said, in untrained runners, um, they actually are further away from their optimal stride length. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about those sorts of things in a second. So suggesting that there is a bigger bang for the buck in untrained runners, but I think it's a high cognitive demand changing your gait. Um, and I probably wouldn't start there. If you were beginning your training, I would just suggest you train better with the running you're doing rather than trying to manipulate your your running gait for essentially kind of a small, uh, the old phrase of marginal gains, mm-hmm. I think comes into play in that respect. Uh, and from a hip a deduction perspective, I know that there's some good, good work by Rich Willey and he's managed to do it from an injury perspective, so I know it. You, you can alter it. I don't. I wouldn't be able to say, oh, that alteration would be good for performance, though. We we don't really know very well with kinematics because most people haven't played around with kinematics and looked at economy. So um, when when I say played around, I mean manipulated it in some way, higher or lower, and measured economy. So we don't actually know the benefits or negatives of doing it excellent cool no i like the way i love the way you just said you know with, with a more recreational around it there's larger things like just waking up in a good mood i mean that can change your you know your pace drastically and i think we've all experienced that so that's a good example isn't it of the effect that you know psychological profile can have on an athlete um but it's interesting because my, my take on gait analysis is that doesn't mean sell your gate sell your treadmill don't advertise gate analysis anymore because i still think that if a runner comes to you and they're looking for performance tweaks and and they believe in you and you've got that buy-in and they respect you and you've got that therapeutic alliance then that's a perfect time to i think talk their language put them on the treadmill have a conversation with them and everything but then guide them towards like you say the lower hanging fruit talk about their training their sleep their nutrition and all this kind of stuff um because it's like everything. If you've got to have someone, you've got to talk to them in their language and put them on a treadmill and have this conversation maybe while they're running for them to buy into it and do it. So I don't think that's a con. Some people have said, but Matt, you've got to tell them that it's not worth changing their running form. Just get them in a chair, you know, just tell them this. And, it, and I'm like, it doesn't work that way. They're runners. They're not normal people. They need to be, if they're not running whilst they're listening to you, then they're not going to believe you. You know, there is, I think there's a lot of that. And I think I'm not sure to what extent research supports that, but I think we know about to get that therapeutic alliance, you need to get that buy-in from the runner and stuff. So we haven't got to throw all our treadmills away and stop seeing people if they want to improve their performance, have we? 
I don't think so. Well, and most people, you know, I've analysed gate for people, uh, like friends doing favours and things like this, and they all they always will say, oh, "How can I, how can I run better, or mm. how can I get quicker, or things like that." So, uh, you know, there are things that you can. Uh, I mean, I'm not an asymmetry expert, but you know, if there were glaring differences, that's where you might go, "Oh, that's interesting," and have you had previous injuries this that and the other um and yeah some things that I do know just from an economy perspective that I can say well I know this if you want to see how you go about changing it and to be honest so, there are some people who can change their gait and there's some that just just can't or or they they can't they don't know what they're doing in the first place and then if you go and try and change it um all hell kind of breaks loose and they do some very weird and wonderful things uh, and actually just having that kind of bodily awareness uh, knowing I guess also from a, a therapeutic perspective is important information as well. Very interesting lovely. Um, I tweeted I'm not sure I spent most of this morning sad isn't it on the morning before St. Valentine's I should have been out looking for presents and things but um I spent most of the morning looking at what I could footage of Camille Heron or Heron I'm not sure it's a double n um somebody forwarded me some stuff about her and um about femoral she was born wasn't she I think it's congenital she was born with kind of quite an obvious um anti-version of the right hip and you can see when she runs it's like knees kind of coming in it totally and and if she went for a gate analysis it'd be like whoa cancel all my appointments we need to change that and yet she's probably already one of the greatest um, in female endurance runners and um, we're seeing and have seen so and now that's great because i've got like an n equals two now because prisca jepto is getting bored of that for 10 years i've been showing photos of prisca jepto and, and kind of doing all that but now camille Heron will be the next person it's still only n equals two but i think when we see elites like this who have got these this variance and whose bodies have obviously, I mean, obviously she was born like that, but the body's found an amazing way to overcome and develop the shuffle. And yeah, she admits she's not really a great 5K runner, but in terms of running 100 miles and more, she's beating guys. She's doing incredible things. So again, like you say, at the top, maybe tweaking it, but all the lower things you've got to have covered and everything which obviously she does. So very interesting running gait there. Looking forward well, to and I think that. that's the thing with endurance. So with sprinting, because you're at that real limit of human performance of speed that's where you do see a lot more similarities in in the running gait and it's i think uh and this because i'm not a sprint biomechanist and some of my colleagues at campus are it, it, they have more of a understanding of this is the kind of model if you will of of sprint running with endurance running because there are so many other factors and it's not at that kind of physical limit of speed uh, that's perhaps why we see a lot of variation uh, going on I think mm, definitely they shouldn't really be compared I think that's one of the downfalls of the they shouldn't even both be called running we should keep them totally separate like I know darts and snooker sprinting is totally different than anything kind of 5k plus it's totally different variables and gate changes and much more variety like you say but most of the things we see the other day, I mean, I spent far, far too much time looking. I'm not too bad. I don't kind of make little TikTok videos criticizing with videos behind me. I'm not at that stage, not yet. But um, yeah, most of these 
treadmill things with saying, oh, look, the heel lift isn't enough and there's not enough hip extension. And you can see the person's running, doing like a 10 minute mile or something. It's like, well, how do you, why do you expect them to be having a cadence of 180 plus if they're running that slow? Because they're taking sprinting mechanics, aren't they? And I'm trying to put it into distance running. But anyway, um, I did ask Camille Heron to come and watch this. And I'm not sure if you are one of the people watching it, but if you are Camille, just first of all, uh, all hail Camille. And secondly, yeah, come on the show. I'd love to uh, talk to you about your training. And if anyone did try and change your style of running, that would have been hilarious. I'd love to see you go into a sweatshop or any um, foot kind of in um, sort of branch. It could be anything I could have mentioned then. Not just sweatshop. Anyway, right. Um, let's have a look at I've got such a list of questions here just to keep me on track. As you can see, that's necessary. So, yeah, um, so we've talked about a lot of the kin kinematic things which traditionally we associate with lack of performance could be, yeah, they're higher up. They're not the low, um, they're not the low hanging fruit, especially with less um, accomplished runners. What about if we jump to injury? Maybe what about the same kind of kinematic variables when it comes to injury? Is that different? If someone comes in in pain, then are we? Uh, yeah, I think. I... <laughs> we were talking a little bit before maybe a lot of people now wouldn't go go to the mechanics of someone running and, and link that to injury i don't think i don't think you can ignore uh particularly you know running gait it's so repetitive and injuries are typically overuse in nature in running so ignoring the mechanics uh, uh, do it do at your peril but I think what we are now more aware of is it's a piece of the jigsaw and although we see things again hip abduction abduction that is um, is one of the, the common features particularly for females with patellofemoral pain they, they have more hip abduction than females without patellofemoral pain and also males who have patellofemoral pain so it, you can see this characteristic of female runners with that type of injury. You, there are studies that have shown that you can manipulate gait and the, it's helpful for pain. There have been several studies. Irene, who we talked about ritually, they've been some of the most prolific researchers. But, uh, and we actually have a PhD student at the moment, so I should probably use this as a, uh, if you have patellofemoral pain, uh, please get in touch because we're currently recruiting runners uh, needed to look at a gait manipulation study. And we also are interested in the psychological kind of cognitive distraction element of, of gait retraining uh, and looking at how, how those things kind of marry up uh, together for that individual. Because I don't think you can just look at the mechanics in this vacuum and just say, you know, that the runner we talked about just then, if, if you have anthropometrical uh, issues that are from birth or from previous injuries, all of these things play a role in how you run. So you can't just put someone on treadmill and, and not ask them anything. Although in a lab, that's what we typically do. So no wonder when we then publish papers, we don't have necessarily all the answers or all of the factors that are useful to understand. So I do think we should still look at running gait because of the very nature of running and the injuries that we see. But I think it's important to know it's a piece of the jigsaw and not the whole jigsaw. 
Excellent. That's going to be a common theme this series, a piece of the jigsaw and not the whole jigsaw. I'm hoping the point is getting through. That's the idea of, of having, I haven't just cherry picked these people like yourself and, and JF and, and Max Paquette. It's you are kind of the leading researchers in this area. So if you're all saying that, then there must be something in there. Or maybe I am just picking people. I'm sure there's papers which would say the opposite. Um, you mentioned spatiotemporal uh, variables. Okay, so for the people who are uninitiated with that, what what are you referring to with spatiotemporal? It's, it's just a very fancy long way of saying things like the the length and time of the variables. So ground contact time or step length and cadence. Whereas our kinematics are things like our joint angles, our kinetics are the forces. So I guess these are probably, especially temporal variables that are, I think, some of the most commonly reported in the literature. They're some of the most easy variables to maybe quantify, to to see, and also therefore to manipulate. So there's been quite a few studies manipulating those variables as well. Um, cadence seemed to be something which both max and jf kind of favored and mitch willie as well who sadly couldn't be on the show but believe me i asked him but very busy at the moment um but yeah he's produced some great work as well um you would have still been here by the way that doesn't mean you've got rich's place yeah just that. it would have been five people back, instead of four the backup option thank you <laughs> no no i'm just i didn't know how that was going to come out but no um i would have i would love to have rich here as well um but um yeah cadence so could you get in a little bit more detail about um yeah, are there any sex-specific differences, maybe, with regards to cadence and step length? So some some have shown that females tend to have shorter steps, higher cadence for given velocity. Um, but actually, there are studies show that when we normalise that to something like leg length, so the step length normalised to the leg length, we see those differences get smaller and sometimes diminish. Um, particularly at more jogging speeds as speed kind of increases that that doesn't hold true necessarily we're suggesting that although it's not the only driver things like our our height our leg length are factors in the step length that we produce but like I said it's one of the most easy manipulated variables so when we look at it in relation to economy we, we actually have quite a good understanding of how cadence and now some of the work that I've done ground contact time relates to economy. Keep going. I hear you talking. Okay. So the um the relationships that we see with cadences from an amazing study by Professor Peter Kavanagh and Keith Williams back in uh, I think it was nineteen eighty two. And they just got people to run their normal cadence and then manipulated it plus or minus, I think it was about 7 and 14% of length and measured economy at the same time. So they literally measured two variables and a really clear hypothesis, what happens when we manipulate cadence to, to economy. And you typically see a, a U-shaped relationship. So the cadence they choose tends to be one of the lowest auction costs. And then as you manipulate it, the step length greater or shorter auction cost rises. And the greater the manipulation to cadence, the greater the rise in auction cost. And when we then model it with some fancy maps, we can predict 
what's the actual optimal cadence for that runner and how close are they to doing that? And in trained runners, they actually tend to be within about two, three percent of their optimal cadence. And I mentioned earlier, untrained runners, when you do exactly the same manipulation, same measurements, they're actually up to about 8% away from their optimal cadence. And then there's been a nice, neat little study that's gone, well, if we do all of that, and then we go, can we shunt people towards their optimal cadence? It took, I think, only about three weeks, and they're able to produce this optimal cadence and have a lower cost of oxygen whilst they're running. And uh, a few years ago now, it came out in 2019, I did a similar study, but I did it with ground contact time. So if we manipulate your contact time, again, shorter or longer contact times than, than habitual ones you take, we see the same kind of relationship with contact time and therefore leg stiffness, which is uh, another variable we calculated. And trained runners, again, within this kind of optimal window, um that they're able to produce these contact times so we can what we say is these variables are self-optimized which means runners have fine-tuned the way they run to help minimize that metabolic cost but these are nice variables that you can actually do in the lab and you could manipulate so i talk about oxygen costs or running economy but you can actually measure heart rate so the study that did it on untrained runners also looked at heart rates or and you kind of would expect it because um, your oxygen consumption and heart rate tend to be linear, have a, a linear relationship, particularly at those submaximal speeds. And so if you manipulate cadence and measure heart rate at the same time, you can see, again, this U-shaped relationship. And we can model it to then try and predict what your optimal cadence might be to produce the lowest heart rate. And how long because initially when people modify anything well most, a lot of runners when they modify anything then they become because they're thinking about it they become less economical and they feel the kind of perceived effort increases but is the idea you do this gradually over time and then eventually if they're monitoring their heart rate for example which is accessible for most runners then they should notice it's going down uh, the, there aren't a huge number of studies that have done it but they've just gone they acutely like do this cadence and try and keep doing it and they just then remeasured after three weeks and found their running economy was better in that three weeks but you're right when we manipulated running gait in the lab and we were just looking actually at foot strike when we did that manipulation perceived effort and oxygen costs tend to again have this kind of linear relationship at mm -hmm. submax speeds but actually when you manipulate gait you almost disentangle that relationship because effort will just always go up regardless of what your oxygen consumption or heart rate is doing um, and like you say it's because you're now no longer doing something that's automated that you don't have to think about and you now are thinking about and it's hard work so it's probably very useful to have that heart rate data because it might be doing something different to your perceived effort. Very interesting. I never get, I never know what to tell runners. Well, I, you know, like at gyms, these treadmills have got heart rate monitors where you're supposed to put your hands on them and it measures your heart rate. They're, they're flawed, aren't they? 
I, I imagine so, yeah. <laughs> because you're no longer running with your arms. How It's not going to give you an accurate rate of... It's just in case anyone's listening and thinking, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell my clients to go and measure their heart rate whilst they're holding on like... If you were if you're a buggy pusher, fantastic. If you've got a little baby and you're pushing your buggy, then maybe that might be accurate. But if you change that context, the brain's clever. Your brain knows. And if the brain senses a little bit of a change, then... Yeah, physiology is going to change as well. But anyway, now that's interesting because I think a lot of people listening will be aware of the changes of gait for offloading knee, for example, and things like that, and and or playing around with Achilles and 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 plantar flex and stuff like that. So, but in terms of performance, that's interesting. It's something that they could maybe give runners something to do um, if they are just looking for performance tweaks to play around yeah, with the measure with heart rate. If they, um, so I put together. God, several years ago now, uh, some free software or a spreadsheet that they can actually just input their data in and it will model it for them and it will tell them how close they are to their optimal and what it is. So um, I can give you the yeah, links well, after or because um, it's, yeah, it's just freely available that I did. Amazing. That would be lovely to put in the show notes. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Look at you producing software as well. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was so. I'll put links to your papers. Uh, it was a substantial. De- oh yeah, you said a substantial decrease in VO two is related to improvement of the resultant ground reaction force um, and leg axes. Okay, right. So um, I'm looking at the time. Gosh, it's already eight fifty five. It's my fault for picking guests with so much to say and so much to ask. Um, so we don't detract too much from female runners. Are there any variables that have been overlooked? So we've talked about the kinematics and how. They're not as low-hanging fruit as you might imagine. What other variables should we be considering with with female runners? Yeah, and I think it's uh, an important question to raise because we often, because of how we've done research, the the male running gait is often a comparison and there's almost this kind of gold standard by default. We'll compare it to males. Uh, And what that means is we kind of miss is the torso, breast biomechanics, because we have nothing to compare them to. So when we do these studies, and there is a few different groups doing breast biomechanics. We've got some in Portsmouth in the UK and a great colleague of mine, Dr. Celeste Coltman over in Cambridge University in Australia. And we're seeing more and more now that what happens up at the breast, whether you have different uh, levels of support in your bra can actually affect things like your stride length, the knee flexion during the contact time, the medial lateral forces that you generate. So there are implications for the overall running gait that we traditionally see or would quantify, such as the ground reaction force, the spatiotemporal metrics, the kinematics. We just don't really know as much as we should because we've always traditionally focused from the pelvis down. And we're missing essentially the upper body. And so we've got uh, really, I think we're, we're getting to the point where we now have some data and we need to write the papers, or myself and Celeste, uh, where we actually are looking at the upper body and how it relates to the lower body and female runners, because we don't know. We don't know enough about that relationship. We do know that essentially you can think of, you know, we run the right arm goes forward with the left leg. So we have this kind of rotational coupling but we don't know the kind of impact maybe the breast motion might have on on that coupling and there's some nice data out there recently that shows that 
hip adduction might actually be related to the, the torso and the rotation and they hypothesize about arm swing but our kind of theory is around what might be going on at the breasts also may influence that kind of motion so there are some sex specific things that we need to examine that we shouldn't be then always comparing back to our kind of male default to find answers fascinating and you say you say some papers may be coming out soon then with regards to that yeah, so we've done a couple of studies uh, recently. And Celeste is coming over for a few months soon, uh, so we can get get our heads down and write some papers up. Amazing. Well, that's certainly um, yeah, that's certainly a variable which just shows, doesn't it? All the research has been done using guys, and all that sort of stuff has been missed simply because of the overdominance of male researchers. Incredible. Um, anything else? I don't know if you could beat that. Any other variables? I think they're the the main ones because of just how much they get overlooked and everyone focusing just on the lower limb. And Mm -hmm. you know what? I did I did the same during my PhD. I I found my hands up to that, and so I looked for only in the lower limb. uh, And I think we need to spend more time looking up at, at the other variables. So also what's going on at the arms and so on that's fantastic because again this is so i love it where uh, really i only do this podcast to get educated myself if people download it that's fine it's purely for me it's, to, it's there's no altruism in it at all but that's amazing because that needs to become an essential part of gait analysis with a female runner isn't it um yeah. whether you're male or female if you're assessing them then what they're wearing in terms of sports bra you need to know something about it or you need to have the confidence to actually say you know what you should go and see this person here because this could be another bit of the jigsaw and it sounds like that could be more of a low-hanging fruit than the other things they may have come to you with like you know oh, wow it's, uh, it's fascinating and i think we as researchers you know we've we've only started saying you know when people come into the lab they should be wearing a sports bar mm. <laughs> surprised perhaps how few don't and that as we've said can maybe influence things about their running gait and it all comes back to traditionally if you've had male participants and male researchers doing it you you wouldn't have asked those questions and and put those stipulations on so we need to start rethinking every kind of common bias that that we may be showing in our research and sometimes asking just these different questions about inclusion exclusion criteria are important as well absolutely fascinating well look it's 901 i had so much other stuff we were going to talk about um but i think there's more than enough there and i don't want to keep you i know you i mean this is wonderful that baby has stayed asleep for an hour isn't it you must be inside thinking what's going on (laughs) It should be asleep. Should be asleep is what I'm thinking. <laughs> no, I really appreciate it, especially like you say, as you're um, now, um, yeah, looking after baby. That's amazing. Um, and do you? How old is your little one now? Did you say a year? Uh, nearly a year. Nearly a year. And you're back to running, or are you just going to take uh, it yeah. easy? Not yet. Yeah, I uh, I did my first around eight weeks. It will take in the first bit of running around eight weeks postpartum, and then. Ramped it, ramped it. I had a very good pelvic health reviews on. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I wasn't completely uneducated in my return. It, it helps to have certain friends. Yes, definitely. I could imagine that. 
Well, look, that's amazing. So much. Thank you so much for your time, um, Izzy. Um, if people want to follow you, you're, you're fairly active on Twitter now, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I'll ramp back up once I get back into work. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's um, at Izzy Moore. So it's I double Z Y Moore M O O R E PhD at Izzy Moore PhD on Twitter. And I admire you because I think you avoid every other form of social media, don't you? Yeah, that's the only one I do. Yeah, yeah, respect. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, I love that. What a lovely idea. Um, and um, if people want uh, more information on the great work that you have done, well, they just need to type your name in. Like I say, um, it will come up everywhere. Just type in Izzy Moore. Um, and you'll find other podcasts out there. Um, you did us the huge honour of coming to Run Chat Live conference down in Brighton, which was lovely to, to meet you there in 2019. And there's plenty of articles and blogs and things out there where people have asked you to contribute. So um, a wealth of information. I'm hoping people who, who are listening to this podcast, um, if you don't know Dr. Izzy Moore and the work that she's done, when this is going to be fantastic for you. It's going to open up a wonderful box of information. So uh, before we sign off, just to let you know that on Thursday, March the 2nd at 8pm GMT, my guest will be Dr. Alison Gruber, Assistant Professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Indiana University in Bloomington. And again, we'll be focusing on this will be the final part of gait analysis. Um, as um, Izzy was saying, Alison Gruber is another huge name in the world of running related research. So um, if you do want to join us live and ask some questions, then that's what you need to do. Just go along to Runchat Live YouTube channel on Thursday, March the 2nd, eight o'clock. But if you prefer in the comfort of your home, own home, which I understand, listening to the podcast, the cup of tea, and then pausing it and doing your own thing, that's great as well. But if you've enjoyed the episode, then please, please just leave a rating and review just so the good word of our guest, for example, Dr. Simor, gets out there more. That's what it's all about. Some amazing information, but we just need to reach more people to help educate the coaches and the therapists and look after the runners and, and make a little bit of a difference. Especially, it would sound, with female runners who, as we've seen in this episode, uh, kind of are still playing second fiddle when it comes to correct advice and information and how they're looked after by our healthcare system. So there we go. Thank you once again, Izzy, Dr. Izzy Moore. Thank you, Matt. Always a pleasure to talk running with you. No, it's great. The pleasure is mine, honestly. And hopefully we'll see some of you, um, like I say, on Thursday, March the 2nd at 8 o'clock. Take care. You're listening to Run Chat Live podcast, putting the evidence back into running injury and performance.